Nick commented earlier that he was worried about the raccoon. I'm worried about the duck. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, I'm Vance Furtado. I'm a teaching pastor here at Resurrection Church, and I'm thankful for air conditioning. How about you? <laughs> yes. All right. So, and again, like Jessica just mentioned, uh, right after we conclude the service, we will be having that potluck. And trust me, the coolers have been running and it's fairly decent over there in the gym. So we'll be having a time over there. So again, we wanna invite all of you to come and join us there, as well as for what the kids will be sharing as we return to the sanctuary uh, this afternoon after the potluck. All right, uh, we are continuing our series that we've been doing, looking at key doctrines of the Bible, uh, using the statement from the second century, the Apostles' Creed, kind of as our guide as we go to the scriptures. So we're gonna be looking at John chapter 18, starting at verse 28 this morning, and it's a fairly long passage. So we'll start at John 18, verse 28. We're gonna go over to John 19, verse 16, and even though the story focuses obviously upon Jesus. I'm calling this the trial of Pontius Pilate concerning Jesus. And I think you'll see why as we go through the message. So I invite you to go there in your Bibles, uh, John chapter 18, verse 28, and we'll be there in just a moment. I'd like to start off, if I can, with a story. Uh, a number of years ago, outstanding book came out and a movie was also based upon the same book. It was called To Kill a Mockingbird. And on the screen behind me, you'll see there a scene from the film. The man dressed in the white suit is an attorney. His name is Atticus Finch. The large man, muscular, in the overhauls, he is the man that Atticus is defending in court his name is Tom Robinson. The story takes place in the 1930s in Alabama. And what happened was Tom Robinson, who is a kind, decent man who wants to show love to people and kindness, well, he's been falsely accused of raping a young white woman. Atticus is the only man in town who will defend Tom Robinson in court. And it, during the course of the trial, Atticus clearly proves that Tom Robinson has been falsely accused and that he is innocent completely of this terrible crime. But because this happens in the South before the Civil Rights era, the jury says Tom Robinson is guilty. Tom's crushed. And the last thing that Atticus tells Tom, don't lose hope. We're gonna appeal. We have a good chance. We have more than a good chance. But Tom gave up. Tom tried to run away and he was shot dead trying to escape. Before that all happened in the story, Atticus, who was a widower, was talking with his son, Jim, 12 years old, 
And Jim really wanted his dad to buy him a pellet gun. So Jim and Atticus were having this conversation, and this is part of what they, Atticus said to Jim, as well as talking to Jim's uh, little sister, Jean Louise. Here's what he said. Remember, it is a sin to kill a mockingbird. Mockingbirds don't do one thing but make music for us to enjoy. They don't eat up people's gardens. They don't nest in corn cribs. They don't do one thing but sing out their hearts for us. Tom Robinson was like a mockingbird. Tom didn't hurt anybody. But nevertheless, by false accusations, Tom Robinson was destroyed. An innocent man. If Tom Robinson, however, was innocent, how much more was Jesus innocent? Nevertheless, he chose to die to lay down his life for us. That's the essence of the gospel. The almighty son of God, the word made flesh, died for us. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, excuse me, Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says this, but God proves, other translations say, demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're gonna be focusing this morning upon what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, again, we have been working our way slowly through the Apostles' Creed, so the earlier statements that we've just been dealing with in our recent sermons build off of this part. Let me just read this to us, okay? I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then this is the part we'll focus on today. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. All right, that is a lot of scripture that we'd have to cover. So we're gonna just focus upon this key story from the Gospel of John. What we need to remember, however, as we do and talk about this is this. What Jesus experienced was all within his Father's preordained plan. Okay? It was exactly what his father intended to happen to his son. And that's what Peter told the people on the day of Pentecost, less than two months after Jesus was crucified and then, of course, rose from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, when the church started, this is part of what Peter told thousands of people who were listening to him. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people like Pontius Pilate to nail him to a cross and to kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Everything 
that Peter says there is absolutely true. But the big issue for us is this. How do we choose to respond to what Jesus did for us? You see, as Peter and also the Apostle John say later in the book of Acts, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by what, by whom we must be saved. Now, if I put this message that I'm sharing with you today into one sentence, what's the idea? Here it is. Everyone, everyone must make a decision about Jesus. Everyone included, includes Pontius Pilate. The hapless, trapped Roman governor who tried Jesus. So as we look at what happened that day when Jesus was condemned and then went to the cross, I would like to us to kind of look at this from a different perspective. Obviously, we're still gonna be, of course, focused upon Jesus, but and another way to look at this is simply this way. Another one who was on trial that day was not Jesus. It was Pontius Pilate. Because Pontius Pilate, no matter how much he tried to dodge the issue, could not get away from trying to have to deal with Jesus. What was he gonna do with this condemned man who was unlike anyone he had ever tried or ever would try before. So we're going to follow the story and it's going to go through basically four stages or steps. So first of all, we're going to meet Pilate before he actually meets Jesus. Okay. That's the opening verses. And then after that, Pilate's going to have to make a decision and we'll call that what to do about the king of the Jews because that's one of the titles that is used that Jesus is accused of, of claiming to be the king of the Jews. And then the next, what do we do about the son of God? Because that's another thing that Jesus is accused of. And then finally, Pilate's final decision. Okay, so let's take a look. Let's go ahead and read verses 28 to 32 in John chapter 18. Read with me. I'm going to read from the English Standard Translation. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they might not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now, get this. They don't want to be defiled yet they're trying to murder a man. Okay? So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation, remember that word, accusation, do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So first thing we need to notice here, 
What's the accusation? Pilate already has some idea of what's been happening involving Jesus. He would have had to have known. Nevertheless, he's trying to start a formal inquiry in a Roman court. So he's basically asking, what are you guys accusing Jesus of? Notice, they don't really answer the question, okay? Because they don't want to get into that issue. They know they're on shaky legal ground and Pilate is already suspicious. So we have to go to another gospel. I'm going over to Luke chapter 23 where at the end of a very illegal nighttime trial which was totally against Roman and Jewish law where Jesus had been tried by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, Luke chapter 23, verses one and two say this. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, or the Messiah, a king. Now, some of what they said there is true. A lot of it is a flat out lie. What really happened at the end of that illegal trial before that Jewish court, before they ever brought Jesus before Pilate? Well, if I go over to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and we start reading at verse 55. Here's what happened. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. See, the deal is this. In order for Jesus to be convicted, to be formally accused of a crime, you need to have two, at least two witnesses say the same thing against Jesus. That's according to Deuteronomy 19.15. And the problem is there's lots of false accusations and lies flying out there, but nobody's agreeing. Verse 60. Then the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What... It is these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, that's God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments, that's illegal, and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They began to spit on him, cover his face, and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. After all of that, they bring him to Pilate. What kind of a man was Pontius Pilate? Well, to tell you frankly, he wasn't much. 
According to one scholar, F.F. Bruce, this is how he described him. Pontius Pilate, he was a weak man who tried to cover up his weaknesses by a show of obstinacy and violence. He was also a compromised man. You see, Pilate had been governor of this province for a number of years, and he had made already some very serious mistakes. Mistakes that led to deaths of people, and at times, close to rebellion. And those mistakes have been reported back to the emperor Tiberius, Pilate's ultimate boss, and Tiberius did not tolerate people who made mistakes. So Pilate is the kind of man who is compromised. He cannot afford to make one more mistake. And he knows that, and so do the Jewish religious leaders. Now, notice when we finish reading, it says there that Jesus had to die by crucifixion. Why? Two reasons. First reason, it was to fulfill his own word and mission. Some three years earlier, when the Lord had a conversation with the Jewish teacher Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and it was trying to explain to Nicodemus what the new birth, what regeneration was all about, the Lord said this. John chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Going back to Numbers chapter 21, where the people of Israel were being bitten by poisonous snakes because of their sin, the Lord told them, make a serpent out of bronze. When people look upon that with faith, they'll be healed. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The first stage of Jesus being lifted up was to be put on that cross. The final stage after his resurrection would be for him when he ascended back to his father, where he is at present, at the right hand of his father, praying and interceding for all of us. And he'll stay there until he returns to claim his own back. Another place, after the disciples Peter being the spokesman, finally figured out that Jesus was not some other prophet. He was not John the Baptist reincarnated. He was the Messiah. It says this, Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, he would rise again. So, Jesus had to die on the cross, first of all, to fulfill his own words and his own mission. Secondly, he had to die on the cross to take the curse of sin that was upon us, upon himself. Paul writes, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I need to explain this a little bit. Our problem before God is sin. Sin is lawlessness. That's what John wrote in 1 John. It's breaking God's law. 
And the problem is, it's because of our sin nature, we cannot not break the law of God in our own strength. No matter how hard we try, we keep sinning. We keep messing up. We can't keep God's commands. Our righteousness, literally, according to Isaiah 64, 6, is nothing more than filthy rags. That's the very best we could offer. And because of that, we are all under sin. And God's wrath, God's judgment, is going to fall unless someone steps up and takes care of that sin. And that's what Jesus did. The curse, the punishment that should have fallen upon us, he took upon himself, the sinless, perfect lamb of God was slain, slaughtered for us. And he did it willingly. He had to go to the cross. That was the only way for us to have a relationship with God. And the deal is this. The only man, humanly speaking, that can send Jesus to the cross was Pontius Pilate. So although he may wiggle one way or the other, ultimately, that's what's going to happen. Okay, let's go on to the next section. What to do about the king of the Jews? Let's start reading at verse 33, John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? That's interesting, in all four gospels, the first time Jesus, excuse me, Pilate talks to Jesus, it's always this opening question. Are you the king of the Jews? You don't look like a king. You know, you gotta remember, Jesus was dressed like a peasant. He was a carpenter before he was a rabbi. He wasn't wealthy, not anywhere near that. And he had already been beaten up quite a bit, so he's a bit of a mess. And the last one who had been called king of the Jews and given that title was Herod the Great, and he was a real piece of work. Because Herod the Great murdered members of his own family to keep his power and tried to kill, if you remember the story, Jesus himself when he was still a baby. You don't look like a king, but he is. And then if you notice, Jesus is wondering, what kind of a king are you expecting? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord and did others say it to you about me? See, the Lord indeed is a king, but he's unlike any king that Pilate ever will confront. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And by the way, the answer to that question is nothing. He hadn't done anything to deserve to be condemned. And by the way, when the Lord goes to the cross that same day 
and he will be crucified in the middle and two criminals will be crucified with him. One of the criminals begins to attack Jesus, saying, if you are indeed the son of God, the Messiah, get us down from here. And the other criminal says, we're here deservedly, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. So Jesus has done nothing. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, meaning the religious leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Yes, he is. The deal is, is that Jesus' kingdom was already present because Jesus the king was present. It just had not been fully manifest yet and it will not be fully manifest, the fullness of his kingdom until Jesus returns. It's interesting, there's a conversation the Lord has with the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17. Here's what it says. Once I'm being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Another way to translate that, it's among you because Jesus was among them. So Jesus was indeed a king, although he didn't look like it, humanly speaking, but he is the king of kings. He indeed has a kingdom that was already being manifest in a limited way and was already functioning in this world and continues to function in this world. That's why Jesus told those parables to teach us how the kingdom of God works. Then he says this, you say that I am a king, verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus did not simply come to bear witness to the truth. Jesus himself reveals to us the very truth, the very nature of God himself. The writer of Hebrews, in his introduction to his letter to the Hebrew Christians who were sadly thinking about ditching Christianity and going back to some glorified Judaism. The writer at the very beginning of Hebrews, the first four verses of chapter one, points out the truth, some key truths about Jesus. He actually gives seven of them. So Hebrews 1.1, starting there, and I'm gonna read through verse four of Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament, okay? But in these last days, that's what we're living in now, he has spoken to us by his son. Here's seven facts, the truth about Jesus. 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, he and the exact imprint of the nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the truth about Jesus. Pilate didn't care. Pilate simply asked that three-word question, what is truth? You know, many people today, us included at times, ask that question. What is truth? How do I know what I'm hearing is true? Because sadly, there's a lot of half-truths out there, so there's a lot of out-and-out lies out there, so how do we figure out what's true? But part of the problem also is simply this. Do they really want the answer? Do we really, at times, want to know the truth? It's like, sadly, you know, just a few hundred yards from here, the Kern River, as we all know, is running like crazy, fuller than it has been in over 40 years. And the signs posted, as we all know, outside the Kern River Canyon warning people, and those signs have been there since I was very young, telling people, do not get in the river, you get in the river, you're gonna die, or you might die. Sadly, we know people have died this year in that river, in spite of the truth that the river is deadly. They don't listen to the truth. How do we respond to God's truth, especially regarding Jesus? Now, Pilate has an emerging problem here, okay? He does not understand Jesus, all right? And he's not really interested in trying to understand Jesus, but Pilate is sharp enough to realize that Jesus is innocent of these accusations. And as the other gospels tell us, he knows the religious leaders have put Jesus before him because they're jealous of Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. So they're hoping Pilate will take care of their problem. Pilate's problem is this. How can he get rid of Jesus without killing him. He thinks he's got a plan. Let's keep reading. Verse 39. But you have a custom, Pilate is talking, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate brings out two prisoners. On the one hand, Jesus, beaten up, falsely accused, innocent man, Jesus. On the other hand, it's Barabbas. Barabbas, the Greek word that John uses to describe him is lesthes. There is no one English word that captures that. Some of our Bibles translate it as terrorist, insurrectionist, robber, criminal, we're also told in the other Gospels he's a murderer. 
Barabbas' name, by the way, means son of a father. Bar, son, Abba, father. Son of a father. A guilty man who should have gone to that middle cross. On the other side, Jesus, the capital S, son of the unique capital F, father. Pilate gives them a choice, hoping the crowd will pick Jesus. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate's plan backfired. God's plan, however, is moving forward because as we've already know, it's God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross. So now Pilate still has to deal with Jesus. So what happens next? Let's go on to the next section. Starting chapter 19, verses 1 to 12, what to do about the Son of God. Verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. Now, by the way, this is not scourging, basically, which was so inhuman and horrible that sometimes people died from scourging before they ever went to the cross. No, this is flogging, which was bad enough, done by these vicious Roman soldiers. Flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Why? Why is he, Pilate, having them mistreat Jesus? He already knows Jesus is innocent. He's already said, I find no guilt in him. Because he's hoping that when the crowd sees Jesus bloodied and beaten, they'll feel compassion. And then he can let Jesus go. So they beat the Lord. They put on the crown of thorns. And we've seen in movies and pictures the crown of thorns. Sadly, most of the time, those pictures are not correct. Because the thorns that these soldiers would have used are from the date palm. The thorns, and I'm not exaggerating, would have been, in some cases, over 12 inches long. Woven together, rammed on his head. 12 inches long, sticking out. So where it would have looked like a halo like what they would have had in Greek and Roman statues showing, oh, this is a God, look at his halo. Jesus had a halo. It was thorns as he bled. And then they took an old soldier's cloak, red, worn out, threw it on him and mocked him. Verse four. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Second time he said that. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now again, Pilate's hoping that when they look upon how Jesus has been treated, how he's been mistreated, that they're going to have compassion upon Jesus. 
By the way, everything that the Lord has experienced so far was all part of messianic prophecy. According to Isaiah 54, excuse me, Isaiah 53, verse four, it says this, 700 years before Jesus was going through all of this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Behold the man. See, Pilate's intention is, pity this poor man. I've taught him a lesson. He'll never again stir up crowds or cause trouble. Look at, look at what he looks like, how he's been treated. Let me let him go. But we've got to remember, guys, this is Holy Scripture. And the Apostle John, who is writing this, who had witnessed this, there's another meaning we have to catch on behold the man. Behold the man is ultimately look at Jesus. Look beyond what he looks like physically. Look at what he's doing. Because he is the only source of our salvation. It's a look we have to give like what the Israelites were told to do to look at the bronze snake in faith and then they would be saved. They would not die bitten by those snakes. So also looking upon Jesus, a look of faith, of trust, saves. Look upon the Lord and be saved. Pilate's intention doesn't work. Verse six. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Third time. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Okay, now the truth finally comes out. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy, saying he's God's son. The problem with that is he is God's son, isn't he? But the religious leaders refuse to recognize that. And so they go to Leviticus 14.6 and they say, look, he's claiming something, he's blaspheming. But Pilate, he's not Jewish. He doesn't look at it that way. Pilate is a Roman. He's a superstitious pagan Roman. And when he hears that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, Pilate gets, as it says in the scriptures, he became even more afraid. And here's why. Pilate knows Jesus is unlike anybody he has ever met before. And he knows he's mistreated terribly. This man that is totally unique, who he knows is innocent. What if Jesus truly is a son of some God? I'm in trouble. That's what he thinks. So he brings Jesus back in. He says, where are you from? He's not asking physically, guys, where the Lord came from. Nazareth, Bethlehem, anything like that. He's thinking of in terms of which particular God are you related to? But remember, Pilate already basically said, in so many words, he didn't care about the truth. 
what is truth? So the Lord doesn't answer him. So Pilate, verse 10, said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Pilate, ultimately all authority is from my father. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Yeah, Pilate was sinning, but who had the greater sin was Caiaphas, the evil, rotten high priest. Now notice verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. In the Greek, it's in an imperfect tense. He keeps trying. He's desperately trying to figure out some way to get out from under this dilemma. And then the religious leaders play their final card. Verse 12. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, later on, the title Caesar's friend will become an actual position in the high levels of the Roman government. But Pilate knows a threat when he hears it. Pilate, the compromised governor who cannot afford to have another mistake, he has a choice now. Either he protects Jesus, the innocent, beaten, mistreated prisoner, or he saves himself. He cannot do both. From then on, oh, excuse me, verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. By the way, archaeologists have uncovered this. And Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That's around noon. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. You see, Pilate's choice was protect Jesus or protect himself. He chose to protect, to preserve himself, and in the process, he lost his soul. Because Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 25 and 26, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Pilate could either choose to be on God's side or he could choose to be on the world's side. He could not do both. So James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, 
There's another Indiana Jones movie out currently, but my favorite of all of those movies is the third one, The Last Crusade. For those of you who've seen it, you may remember near the end of the movie, there is a very old crusader knight. We're never given his name, but for centuries he has guarded the cup that Jesus drank from in this cave. And when Dr. Jones and these, these other people get into the room, he tells them, you better choose carefully which cup you drink from because there's one real one and all the rest will kill you. Well, the villain of the story, he grabs a cup covered with gold, with jewels. He thinks, oh, surely this is the one that Jesus used. And he drank from it and he died. The old knight says simply, he chose poorly. That's what Pilate did. Pilate mocked and taunted the religious leaders, but in the end, he gave in. The Lord went to the cross. He was condemned, though he was the sinless Lamb of God. Pilate condemned him, but he also condemned himself. And by the way, in Matthew's account, Matthew 7, 24, Pilate is kind of like his last throw. A crest brings out a large bowl of water and before everyone washes his hands and says, his blood be on your heads. I am innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd says, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. What a terrible thing to say. And by the way, it was not that easy for Pilate to do away his guilt. So a final question, as we come back again to our main idea, what will we decide about Jesus? That question cannot be ignored. He won't let us ignore it. Pilate couldn't no matter how hard he tried. What will we decide about Jesus? If you do not know Jesus who died for you to take away your sins so that you could live forever in heaven, in his presence, and have a relationship with him, what to do about Jesus is accept what he did for you. Trust him as your only Savior and Lord to cleanse you of your sin. For those of us who are already following Jesus, what to do about Jesus is keep following him. That's simply what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, seeking to honor and glorify Jesus. So what will we decide about him? Now, as Rachel plays, as we normally do, we're gonna have a time for folks to come forward for prayer. Whether it's about something in the message, whether it's something else, you want prayer, please come forward. Pastors, elders, some of our prayer team will be down here at the front. So you come as the Lord leads.